Thank you. We're going to be uh, in the Gospel of Mark today, continuing our Mark series. So Mark 12, we've just got two verses today, verse 35 to verse 37. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that as we approach this word today that you would renew a freshness in it for us. Though this passage may be very familiar to us, though we have probably been in many sermons about this particular passage of Scripture, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would renew a freshness within the word today. We pray, Lord God, that you would cause fruit to come about in our lives because of what we hear today. We pray by your grace, Lord, that you would work in us to love Jesus more through what we hear today. Amen. This is a short but very powerful passage of Scripture. You can find the parallels of this story of Jesus teaching in the temple in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22 and also in Luke 20. We're going to cover subjects like the nature of the Messiah. This is a really, really central gospel issue that we're going to look at today. The nature of the Messiah. Who is Jesus? We're also going to see in this passage of Scripture, Jesus' view of Scripture. Jesus' view of what Scripture is. So we find Jesus at this point in the passage teaching in the temple. And up to this point, if you remember, Jesus has been visited by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were kind of the ruling elite, the ruling elite of the Jews at that time. You had in the Sanhedrin the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, all of the Seas, and you had the scribes who were like the kind of theologians of the day. And they had all come together to cross-examine Jesus. And in fact, the Sanhedrin, they'd also brought the Herodians in on the game as well. So these guys were not necessarily religious scholars, they were politicians. But the whole point was that they wanted to cross-examine Jesus. They wanted to try to refute him publicly. Because at this point, Jesus had already got a big following in Jerusalem. If you remember him marching into Jerusalem, they were singing, weren't they? Hosanna, Hosanna. In the name of the Lord, we were singing Hosanna to the son of David. So he's got a big crowd. The Sanhedrin are doing the best that they can to turn some of that crowd against Jesus. He's been grilled by them. But we know from the passage of Scripture here that he has silenced them all. In verse 35, rather, it says, sorry, verse 34, it actually says that no one dared ask him any more questions questions and now 
our Lord turns the tables on the Sanhedrin. He goes on the offensive and begins to ask them questions. I think this shows us something about how we, as Christians, are permitted to do evangelism. I think it shows us that there is a time for us to sit back and hear the questions of those who don't believe. I think it's very important that we do that. It can be uncomfortable sometimes, can't it, to sit across the table from somebody or having a Facebook discussion with somebody who doesn't believe what you believe. It can be uncomfortable, but I think Jesus shows us here that it is necessary sometimes to do that. And when we are hearing questions, we do our best to hear out what they're asking and not shut them down, but to listen and to respond appropriately. 1 Peter 3.15, of course, says, always be ready to give an answer. In fact, that word there is apologia, which is where we get the study of apologetics from. Always be ready to give a defense for what you believe. And I think in this day and age, when we are in a country, really, that most people don't know the stories of the Bible, things have changed quite dramatically in the last 20 or 30 years, you can't in any way, shape, or form say that this nation is a Christian nation anymore. And many children are growing up without any kind of understanding of Scripture, of what the Bible teaches, of what Christianity is. So it's really important, I think, for us as a church to be able to respond to questions about what we believe. So I think on one hand, we have to be ready. We have to have an answer. So we need to know certain things about what we believe. I think this is key, and I think maybe in the last 20, 30 years as a church in the nations, we haven't done a great job of this. We haven't done a great job of it because we'll always say something, well, well, he changed my life. You know, Jesus changed my life, and that's great. That's powerful. Telling your testimony is great. But how many of you understand a Mormon can do that? A Jehovah's Witness can do that. Well, it changed my life. A Muslim can do that. You can experience a life change through pretty much any worldview. Reiki healing, whatever it is. Oh, it changed my life. Well, that's great, but anyone can say that, right? A Christian can say more. A Christian can say far more than just Jesus changed my life. A Christian can say, I believe this because it's true. I believe this because the gospel is based on historical facts that are verifiable or falsifiable. I believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead because that's the best evidence that we have from history. In fact, one of the most, one, one of the best attested facts in ancient history, as Vody Bochum says, is the resurrection of Christ. There's no getting around it. And so I think as Christians, we could do a better job of understanding the gospel, of understanding that our faith, yes, is supernatural, and yes, each of you has a wonderful testimony of how God has worked in your life that should be told. But equally, you believe it because it's true. You could have your life changed, but you could have your life turned around by a lie. Couldn't you? But what we believe is so powerful because it is true. So Jesus shows us that it's okay to answer questions sometimes, even if those asking the questions don't have the best interests at heart. Jesus also shows us, though, 
that there is a time for us to respond. There is a time for a Christian to come and ask questions of the skeptic. There's a great quote. For those who believe... Is there a problem with the mic? It's me. Am I moving? I'm moving. I'll try and fix this. Oh dear. Um, I think I think we've. Well, we'll try. We'll try with that. But if the other one could be ready, that would be great. Oh. This. Back on track. Okay, so for those who believe, no explanation is necessary. For those who do not believe, no explanation is sufficient. So what this is saying is that there's going to be some times when the person that you're speaking to is not going to believe. No matter what you say, no matter how many reasons you give for the Christian faith, there will be some that don't believe. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't answer them. And I think, you know, I've seen this this week. I, I, I make content sometimes on, on the internet, which is always a dangerous game. And um, this past week, I, I created a, a few um, reels that went on Instagram uh, that were to do with the gospel, to do with apologetics. And, like, sometimes it's, it's like casting your bread on the water with reels. Sometimes you get, like, 10 views. Sometimes you get loads. This one went viral and so far has, like, 160,000 likes and people just literally living their life in the comments. And so we've had all sorts of debates. We've got Muslims in there. We've got Jews. We've got atheists. We've got Christians all going at it in the comments. And it's been fantastic. It's been brilliant. We've got to preach the gospel to an MMA fighter. Um, We've had all sorts of things going on. But what you can see is that sometimes, you know, it's just important to put the answer out there. It's not always the case that that person's going to believe but that's not your job. Your job as a Christian is just to sow a seed sometimes. As Greg Kukul says, to put a pebble in their shoe. Something that they're going to go away with and remember, and it's going to bother them. And I think that's what we can do sometimes, just by asking questions back. For example, the atheists always come with, how can you believe in a God that's murdered people? God's got a higher kill count than Satan. And my response is, what does that matter to you? You're a bag of protoplasm. What does it matter to you? You evolved from primordial soup. In your universe, there's no such thing as good or bad. I can prove it to you. Richard Dawkins has literally said that. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there there is at bottom no good, no bad. No moral distinctives. No moral duties. So an atheist, when they call something evil, what they're really saying is, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't prefer that. On atheism, there's no such thing as objective morality because there's no objective standard for moral duties and values. There's just stuff. There's just matter. Matter, that chair, for example, is a bunch of atoms. It's neither good nor bad, is it? It has no moral value. So if all there is is just atoms and molecules and random chance universe, 
Where are you pulling out reason? Where are you pulling out logic? Where are you pulling out objective standards of right or wrong? You see what I mean? Sometimes it's our duty to actually question the other person's worldview and not just to sit back and take a lashing. They're not probably going to believe you, but at least you've put that out there. So Jesus responds with a question. Moreover, Jesus' question comes from Scripture. He goes to the Old Testament and he asks them a question from Psalm 110. I think this is key. I think this is key because so many of us, when we're talking about our faith with unbelievers or talking about Jesus with skeptics, we can be a bit shy of the Bible. Jesus wasn't shy about the Bible. He reasoned from Scripture. He reasoned from the passages of Scripture. So I think we have no need to be ashamed of the Bible. Jesus asked them a question. He says, he asked them about the Christ. You see this parallel also in Matthew 22, where Jesus asks the Pharisees a question. Who do you say the Christ is? What do you say about the Christ? Just to get this clear as well, Christ equals Messiah. Christ equals Messiah. I hear it a lot these days because people have got Strong's concordances. They go, Christ means anointed one. Yeah. But in a Jewish worldview, it it meant Messiah. It meant Messiah, okay? So the two are interchangeable. So who is the Messiah? Now, the Jews at the time believed that the Messiah would be the son of David, or in other words, a descendant of David. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So there was an expectation of a Messiah coming, a God's chosen one coming from the lineage of David. And of course, earlier on in our study through Mark, you remember as Jesus was passing through Jericho, he's stopped by a blind beggar called Bartimaeus. And what did Bartimaeus call out? Have mercy on me, son of David. Son of David. And as Jesus then came into Jerusalem, Matthew's gospel tells us the crowd was crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Of of course, Hosanna literally means save now. Save now, please, son of David. What's really cool is that at the time, at the time that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, they began singing that, Hosanna to the son of David. There were detailed detailed records of lineage which were kept in the temple. And so why is that important? It's important because the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they would have been able to check whether Jesus truly was from the lineage of David. And of course, if he wasn't, they could have come out and proved that. There's no way this guy could be the Messiah. He's not from the line of David. They checked the records And they found what Matthew and Luke found, that on both sides, on his earthly mother, Mary's side, and on his earthly father's side, Joseph, Christ was descended from David. 
Those records, of course, got destroyed in AD 70. Now, Jesus seems to take issue with them, doesn't he? He seems to take issue with them believing that the Christ would be the son of David. But that actually isn't the case. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem, doesn't seem to have a problem with... Can I change mics? Is that all right? Thank you. So Jesus quotes from Psalm 1110. And Psalm 1110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up his head. This psalm, it might surprise you to know, is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. It's actually quoted 33 times in the New Testament. You see, the early church, the first Christians, they believed that Psalm 110 was prophetic. They believed that it spoke about the Messiah. And what's interesting is that the Jews believed that too. Up until Jesus came, the Jews believed that Psalm 110 was telling us about who the Messiah would be. Guys, can we knock a bit of aircon on? I'm sweating up here. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm going to melt. <laughs> you guys might be okay, but it is hot up here. Um, what's interesting is that After Jesus came along, and after the early Christians co-opted this psalm and said, this is about the Messiah, guess what happened? The Jews stopped mentioning it. There's absolute radio silence about Psalm 110 after the arrival of Christ. Up until Jesus came, this psalm's about the Christ. After he came, radio silence for a few hundred years. And when rabbis start mentioning it again, it's no longer a messianic psalm. It's about other people. Maybe David. Maybe one of the Maccabean kings. So don't you think that's interesting? Jesus arrives on the scene, and this seems to be clearly about him. And the Jews suddenly change their tune. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus says about this psalm, because he says that David wrote this psalm. And in your Bible, you might have written at the top of this psalm, a psalm of David. But there are many scholars today, many theologians, 
that don't actually believe that David wrote this psalm. They don't believe David wrote it. There are some who believe he can't have written it because they think it's about him. And there are others for other reasons that believe David didn't write it. But Jesus clearly says that David did write it. Jesus says this is a psalm of David. Now for me, that's good enough evidence that David did write it. Why? Because Jesus said he did. Why am I talking about this? Why are we discussing this minor point of detail? We're talking about it because there are lots of things in your Bible that are quite fantastical. There are things in your Bible which don't seem plausible always, do they? Think about it. A global flood, for example. Everything being created from nothing. The sun standing still in the sky. There are lots of things which bend the rational mind when we think about them. But these things, I don't struggle to believe, but my main reason for not struggling to believe them is because Christ believed them. And I think this is really key. Some of these things are hard to understand, but if Jesus believed that they were true, then so can I. For example, Jesus believed that David wrote Psalm 1110. So therefore, so will I. Secondly, Jesus believed the biblical account of creation. He talks about it in Matthew 19. He talks about God creating mankind. Male and female, he made them in his own image. Jesus quotes from the biblical creation narrative. He doesn't say, guys, you know, I was going to quote from Genesis, but I just need to let you know that actually it's not a scientific document. It's more of a poem. And what you need to know is that the day, you know, the gaps in between the days are like a billion years here and a billion years there. And what you need to know is that Adam and Eve, they weren't real people. They're just, they're just representative of genomes. So he doesn't say that. He quotes from it verbatim, Jesus believes the biblical account of creation, and therefore so will I. Thirdly, Jesus believed the biblical account of the flood. He believed what the Bible has to say about the flood, that it was worldwide, that it destroyed all life apart from Noah and his family, fantastical as that may be. Now, theologians of late have said all sorts of things about the flood, haven't they? That it was localized, um, that it was essentially a big flash flood that happened in one part of the world, that it didn't really wipe out everybody, but was located around the area in which Noah lived. But Christ doesn't mention any of that. Christ quotes the biblical text in support of the flood and actually connects it, interestingly enough, with judgment. In Luke 17, he connects the flood and its extensive effect on mankind with when he comes back, when all will be judged. So you can see there that if the flood was local and it only happened to a few people in one region, then the analogy breaks down because judgment then would only happen locally to a few people. Can you see that? Global flood, global judgment, okay? So Jesus believed the biblical account of the flood. Hard as that may be to believe, I believe it because Jesus believed it. Number four, Jesus believed in a real Adam and a real Eve as people. As people, not as many say these days as genomes or people types or whatever it is. Jesus and the apostles believed that they were real people. Now that's something 
that can bend the mind for many people. How is it that we've all come from these two people? You know, especially if we have a, a worldview that says that we, we all evolved and maybe then came from different species at different times, came from, I don't know, whatever kind of species we evolved from. Now, Jesus believed in a literal Adam and a literal Eve, and that is the case for the apostles as well. And again, if we, if we are to say that there wasn't a real Adam and there wasn't a real Eve, and that they're just metaphorical, and that really we've all evolved at different stages, then that there are problems for our doctrine. There are problems for our gospel. Because in Adam, all fell, didn't they? We need that common descent from Adam, as the apostles preached, in order to have the doctrine of universal sin. So Jesus believed in a real Adam and a real Eve. And finally, notice what Jesus says in verse 36. David wrote this by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. So Jesus believed that on one hand, the psalm we're reading was written by David. But on the other hand, he wrote it by the Holy Spirit. Your Bible that you have in your hand was written by men. Actual people in history put that book together. On the other hand, the book you hold in your hands was written by God. Dual authorship. Human, divine. Fully divine, fully human. A bit like Christ himself. And sadly today, many Christians do not believe this. They believe the Bible perhaps is a collection of human writings spanning 3,000 years, fallible people speaking from their particular point in history. But that's not what Jesus believed. That isn't what Christ believed. He believed that your scriptures were divinely inspired. God breathed, as Paul says. All scripture is theanostas, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's why we have confidence in this church to preach verse by verse, because we know that's the stuff that Christians need to grow. They need the Word of God. They need the inspired Scriptures. Now, this passage, Psalm 1110, begins with, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, when we go back into the Old Testament and read that, the word formulation is slightly different, because you understand the Old Testament was written in what language? Mostly in Hebrew, apart from small bits of Aramaic. What's the New Testament written in? Greek. In the New Testament, this just says, kurios to kurios. Ho kurios says to kurios. Mu, my, my Lord, okay? So the Lord said to my Lord. But if you look in the Old Testament, there's two different words. It actually says Yahweh, so capitalized Lord. That's God's actual name, Yahweh. Yahweh says to Adonai. Adonai, which means my Lord. So we've got God's name, Yahweh. He is speaking and announcing something to Adonai, my Lord. So Yahweh is talking to somebody called Adonai. Now, I want to say this, okay? We have to be careful not to try and prove too much by that simple name. Because Adonai is used in the Old Testament 
to speak of God. More often than not, the word Adonai speaks of God in the Old Testament. However, it can also refer to kings and rulers of a human nature. So it's not necessarily proving that this Adonai is divine. However, it is interesting. I think we have to look more into what the rest of Psalm 1110 says about this person called Adonai. And we can see from this passage that this Adonai, who Yahweh is speaking to, firstly is someone who Yahweh is seating at his right hand. So David's Lord, David's Lord is somebody who is seated at the right hand of Yahweh. That is the position of power at the side of Yahweh. He is named Adonai. He is someone who has a holy people. He has a holy people. He's also somebody who's a priest. Now, we've talked about this recently, haven't we? We've talked about Jesus Christ, our high priest. What does a priest do? A priest comes offering a sacrifice for sins. So whoever this Adonai is has to be somebody who is bringing an offering for the forgiveness, for the expiation of the sins of his people. Was David a priest? No, he wasn't a Levite. He couldn't be a priest. So this psalm can't be talking about David because David wasn't a priest. Whoever this is in this psalm here is a priest, and not just a priest after the order of Aaron, who's providing animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of the people of God, but he's after the line of Melchizedek. This is a priest who is bringing an offering on behalf of a people for the forgiveness of sin. Finally, this Adonai mentioned in Psalm 110 is also somebody who will judge. Now, it doesn't just say that this Adonai is going to judge the people of the nation of Israel, does it? It says he will come and judge on the day of his wrath. All nations. So this can't be, again, talking about David, who had a remit to his earthly kingdom and was given jurisdiction over the people of Israel. Yes, but not over the peoples of the whole world. Whereas this person is going to judge the whole world, every nation. He's not going to be some ordinary earthly ruler, is what Jesus is saying. And so, yeah, the Messiah is going to be Jesus's, sorry, is going to be David's son, but he's also going to be David's Lord. And if you remember the Old Testament passage from Jeremiah talking about a branch being raised up from David, check this out in Revelation 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah the root of of David. The root of David has conquered. So in the Old Testament, Jesus is called the branch of David. In the New Testament, he's called the root. Augustine said this, Christ that is, he was the Lord of Mary, he was the son of Mary. He was the creator of Mary, who was created from Mary. Do not be amazed that he is both son and Lord. Christ is son of David according to his human nature, but Lord of David according to his divine nature. 
The Chalcedonian Creed says Jesus is truly God and yet truly man. You see, the scribes' view of the Messiah, it was too earthly. It was too earthbound, too human. Not enough divinity. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's still the case today. Do you know that people still want a Messiah? People still want a savior in this world. They want a great politician to come and lead them. They want a great scientist to come and lead them into truth. They want philosophers. They want athletes. They want saviors and messiahs, but only saviors and messiahs who are just like them, human. They don't want God. And this is why Christ was rejected. He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. He was too heavenly. Jesus divides opinion. And he still does today. We read that the crowd loved what Jesus was saying about this. They loved what he was saying and teaching to the Pharisees, but we can imagine that they didn't. They weren't enjoying what he was saying. Wherever the gospel is preached, or wherever Jesus is preached, you'll find division. You'll find people falling down at his feet and worshiping, and you'll find other people calling it absolute nonsense. It's the way of it. You know, I've, 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 I don't think I've ever received more abuse on social media this week from people who don't believe People who are angry. There's just something about Jesus that gets people mad. He divides opinion. But Yahweh has seated him at his right hand. He's seated him at his right hand. And right now, as Jesus is seated, he is placing every single one of his enemies under his feet. Because what we're seeing here in Psalm 110 is a conversation happening within the Godhead, the highest council in the whole cosmos. You know, we think of the councils that meet at 10 Downing Street. We think of the councils that meet at the House of Lords in the House of Commons. These gatherings really do make decisions that will impact our life. We think of other councils that are happening in the world right now. International, multi national, global groups that come together to make decisions that can impact the world. But what we're to remember as Christians is that there is a council which is above every earthly council, above every earthly kingdom and government, and that is the sovereign council of the Godhead. What is being discussed and agreed upon within the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is ultimately what is going to come to pass in this universe. Ephesians 1.11 says that our God works all things, say all things, according to the counsel of whose will? His will. His will. And His will is that Christ should be ruler over all. His will is that everything should be placed under His feet. 
And that all shall acknowledge and all shall bow the knee to Christ one day, whether willingly or unwillingly. Our God is a sovereign God. Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, he knew this. He knew about the sovereignty of God. He knew about the rulership of God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is going to have his way in this universe. And what I want to say today is, what side of history are you going to be on? There's only two types of people in this world. People who are dead in sin or people who are dead to sin. People who revile Christ or people that worship Christ. There is no such thing as a neutral person, no matter what they might say. Which side are you on? When we preach this gospel, when we talk about Christ, when we talk about his divinity, the fact that he will come back and he will judge, is this something that you love? Or is it something that you hate? It's easy to love a Jesus who runs after the lost sheep and pulls it out of the ravine. It's difficult for some to love a Jesus who will arrive back on a white horse. ready to cast some into hell. But this is what our Bible says about him. Do you love this about him? Do you love the shepherd Jesus? Do you love the sovereign Jesus who will return? Which side of this are we on? Let's stand. We invite the worship team to come back up, please. I want us to close our eyes for a moment and just put our hands out in front of us as a gesture of being receptive right now. Father, we pray that today we will be like that crowd that gladly heard your teaching. We pray that we would be like those people who rejoiced at the coming of their Messiah. We pray we would not be lukewarm when we talk about Jesus, when we think upon your glory, your nature, the fact that you are fully human, just like us. You were tempted in every way but without sin, but equally that you are divine fully divine, reigning with God right now. We pray that these thoughts would be glorious to us. Father, we pray that you would give us a hunger to hear about our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray in this church that we would be on fire for truth. Lord, that we would love to hear these things, just as that crowd loved to hear these things. And we pray, Lord God, that you would make us more winsome in our evangelism. Lord, we pray you would make us as gracious as is possible. Lord, you stood there and you heard the questions of these people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. Even though they were looking to undermine you, you stood and you listened to their questions. You stood and you heard them out. You responded with compassion and grace and truth. Lord, help us to do the same in a nation that is so crippled with skepticism, so crippled with sin and autonomy. 
Lord, that you would give us that grace to hear out the skeptic. But Lord, also that you would fill us with a a boldness in the Holy Spirit today to respond. Not to hide in a corner. Lord, not to apologize for our Christian faith, but to explain it, to expound it, to reveal it, to preach it, Lord. That you would make of this church a congregation of gospel-preaching, spirit-filled believers. Not a group of Christians hiding in a corner waiting for Christ to return. Lord, we would have it that before you come back, we would plunder the devil, that we would take from him those who he thinks he has. That you would use us mightily in reaching people for the gospel. Oh Lord, we pray, would you help us today to be more confident in you, more confident in your ability to save, more joyful in the fact that you have saved us. Oh, Jesus, we marvel at that truth that you have saved us. As the words go, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, that those words would become true to us. Just as they were true to that slave trader, Lord God, that man who imprisoned people, that man who, Father, did so much evil. He knew the weight of his own sin. Lord, may we know the weight of our own sin. May we know that we deserve nothing from you but judgment. Apart from your Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've chosen to have grace on us today. And we pray, Lord God, that we would live our lives in light of that truth. Amen. Let's sing together.